Our second lesson comes from Paul's letter to the church in Rome. We have come finally to chapter 8, and we will be reading uh, verses 1 through 11 in this chapter. Again, I invite you to turn in your Bibles and follow along as I read. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so He condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, and yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who lives in you. And herein ends the reading of God's Word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to Him and to Him alone. Amen. We come this morning to, at long last, to what is perhaps the most precious chapter in all the Bible. Believers from every walk of life and from all over the world have found in Romans 8 so much comfort, so much encouragement, so much spiritual nourishment that they come back to this chapter over and again. The American Charles G. Trumbull, editor of the Sunday School Times back in the early 20th century, said this, The Eighth of Romans has become peculiarly precious to me, beginning with no condemnation, ending with no separation, and in between, no defeat. This wondrous chapter sets forth the gospel and plan of salvation the life of freedom and victory, the hopelessness of the natural man and the righteousness of the born again, the indwelling of Christ and the Holy Spirit, the resurrection of the body and blessed hope of Christ's return, the working together of all things for our good, every tense of the Christian life, past, present, and future, 
and the glorious climactic song of triumph, no separation in time or eternity from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is little doubt that based upon the tremendous amount of rich material in this chapter that we could spend weeks and weeks in Romans 8 alone. I believe that I told you as we began this series on the book of Romans that the Reverend Dr. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones preached 366 sermons on the book of Romans, 75 of which were on the 8th chapter alone. Now, just so you know, I'm planning on taking five Sundays, maybe six, to cover the same amount of material. But that being said, this is a pivotal point in Paul's discourse. For having stated his gospel in chapter 1, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. He then set out to make the case for why humanity is in such desperate need for this message of good news. And from chapter 1 through chapter 7, Paul thoroughly explains our incapacity to justify ourselves in the sight of God. Whether we are Jew or Gentile, whether we have the law or not, regardless of our heritage or our position in life, the fact of the matter is that every one of us is a sinner under the condemnation of God. And he explains how sin came into the world and death through that sin and how that sin enslaves us in ways that are beyond our capacity to overcome. But then comes the good news that God has justified the elect in a way that does not depend upon us, nor does it violate God's just character. Chapter 3, verse 21, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. But you see, not only have we been justified in the sight of God, whereby our debt has been erased, and we have been declared innocent because of the atoning work of the Son, thus establishing peace between God and us. But God has gone so far as to break the power of sin in us and provide us with an internal power source that is the very presence of God in the person of the Holy Spirit. And it is to this that we now begin to attend as we consider this sanctifying work that God undertakes in us who have placed our faith in Christ. Now this first verse alone could occupy us for all of our time this morning. So glorious is it in its proclamation. 
There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I doubt very much that there are many who have heard the words of a human judge saying, I find you guilty and sentence you to death. To find such people would require going to a maximum security prison and there to walk before the cells of death row. Because as a society, we keep such individuals isolated, not only from the rest of society, but also isolated from the general population within the prison. These are individuals who have forfeited their right to all freedom of movement. They've been deemed to be a danger to all others. But here's the thing. Every single person that has had that pronouncement made about them in the garden, that's our predicament. Because the eternal judge declared, I find you guilty and sentence you to death. And then the first man and the first woman were cast out of the presence of God. Not because they were a danger to God, but because God was a danger to them. It was an act of grace that prevented them from being annihilated by the fullness of God's holy splendor. And from that point forward, the rest of the earth became death row. There were none that were righteous. No, not one. How often have you heard someone say, man, I just don't know what has happened to the world. It has gone completely mad. Well, what do you expect when the entire population is guilty of rebellion against God and has been condemned to death by the one who made them? Of course the world has gone mad. Their minds are not fixed upon God. They are fixed upon the flesh. But thank God that God has intervened. For by God's grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone, a way of pardon has been created by which men, women, and children from every tribe and nation and tongue may be justified before God's bar of judgment and find immediate peace with God. Not a counterfeit peace, like the world attempts to create, but a divine peace whereby your soul is bathed in the cleansing waters of God's own Spirit and you suddenly realize that all your filthy ungodliness and unrighteousness has been wiped away. It is a peace that overwhelms your mind to the degree that you intuitively know beyond all shadow of doubt that you are no longer condemned but you have been adopted into the family of God. It is a peace that passes all understanding from the perspective of the world, for it is spiritually revealed to you by God Himself. And this is what Paul is declaring here. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now this is not a blanket pardon for the entire world in the sense of universalism. God has not simply changed His mind as though Adam caught Him at a bad moment when He sentenced Him and all His progeny to death. 
God did not suddenly wake up one morning as the open theists would have you believe and decide that He was maybe a little overly angry in the garden, but He has mellowed out over the eons and has now reversed course because that original sentence was just too harsh. The pardon that God extends is for all those who are in Christ. That is, the pardon is available to any and all who will come to Christ in genuine repentance and faith and pledge their fealty to Him as Savior and Lord. But the terms of the pardon are not negotiable. And there is a reason for that that Paul explains here in the verses that follow. When God created Adam... He was a perfect man. That is, there was no trace of moral imperfection in him. Adam was not created with any vestige of sin. But he was not divine. To be divine would mean that he was an eternal being with no beginning and no end. Adam was made from the dust of the earth. God breathed life into him. But it was possible for Adam to obey the Lord And yet he willfully chose the path that the devil set before him, believing the lie that he could be like God. But once Adam sinned, once he fell into moral depravity, it became impossible for Adam to do anything that would be pleasing in God's sight, for everything he touched was polluted. And this was not only true for Adam, but it was also true for all of his progeny. So when the law was given to a people suffering with spiritual nearsightedness, the law defined what righteousness looked like, but their sin prevented them from seeing it accurately, and they turned it into something that they believed they could do. And yet they fell woefully short. Jesus points this out in His Sermon on the Mount. But Jesus He was able to satisfy all that the law required. And this is what Paul means here when he says that God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. That is, Jesus was divine. The eternal Son of the Father, the second person of the Godhead, had no beginning, and and He has no end. And He took on our flesh. But notice that Paul says, in the likeness of sinful flesh. And what he means by that is that Jesus looked like us in that He was fully human, but that He did not suffer with our spiritual depravity. He did not inherit Adam's sin by virtue of the virgin birth. Sometimes, and this is a bit of an aside, people will argue that Paul says nothing about the virgin birth, but in fact Paul speaks of it here when he makes this statement. So God sends His only begotten Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to accomplish what Adam and all his progeny could not accomplish. He lived a life under God that was perfect in every way. Every thought, every word, every deed, every emotion was perfectly holy and just. In other words, Jesus satisfied every righteous requirement of the law. 
Now, he did this in order that he might be the unblemished lamb who would take away the sins of the world. He was that sin offering. But more than that, he did it in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, what does that mean? As we have said, God has not only orchestrated our justification by means of the life and death and resurrection of Christ, but God is also orchestrating our full redemption by purging every vestige of sin in us by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. God is engaged in the full redemption of the created order. Everything that suffered because of our introduction of sin into the world, God is making new. Jesus is seated at the Father's right hand, reigning over His kingdom, bringing all God's enemies into subjection. And part of that process involves the sanctification for all who are in Christ, such that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. That is, while we were apart from Christ, it was impossible for us to live in righteousness according to the law. The weakness of our flesh was such that we could not do it. And the worst of it was that we did not even desire to do it. Our mind was under the domination of our sinful flesh. We did not think the thoughts of God. We did not want to think that way. We were enamored with the wisdom of the world, and that's what we chased after. Before the Holy Spirit opened our blind eyes, we were at enmity with God, and we were in love with this fallen world. But that changed when God took the initiative, and the Spirit of God regenerated us to new life. And in that moment, we became a new creation. The old passed away. The new came into being in us. We pass from death to life. We move from the kingdom of darkness into His marvelous light. And the Spirit of God took up residence in us and it suddenly became possible for us to begin a life that would be pleasing unto God. Not that it would be without failure. It would not be perfect in every way but it would begin to be changed from one degree of glory to another as the Spirit's transforming work would have an impact upon us, turning us more and more into the image of His Son. Now this does not mean that the law of Moses has suddenly become a requirement for us because that's not what Paul is saying here. He says that we are no longer under condemnation because... The law of the Spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. That is to say that God's own Spirit has taken charge of the definition of righteousness. We're not measuring righteousness against a written code. It is being measured against a life that was lived perfectly before the eyes of the world 2,000 years ago. Because what is pleasing and righteous to God is a life where we love Him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. It is a life where we love our neighbor as ourself. 
It is a life where submitting our wills to His will is not a debate, it's an act of worship. It's a life where our minds are fixed upon the things of heaven as we survey a world in need of redemption. It is a life that is lived with the knowledge that we have been set free from the power of sin and have been gifted with the very presence of Christ to live into that spiritual freedom without fear of condemnation ever again. And this is not a temporary thing. It is a new spiritual reality. Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And this is the reality of what occurs when the grace of God falls upon us and we come to a point of spiritual surrender to Christ. And this is true for every single believer. There is no one who has come to Christ in genuine repentance and faith who is not the permanent recipient of the Spirit of God. There's no second stage of Christian growth or experience as some contend. Paul is contrasting those who are regenerate and those who are not. You're either born from above or you are not. And if you are born from above, then you have the Spirit of Christ living in you. That isn't something that happens later. It is true the moment that the Spirit of God brings you from death to life. And the benefits of all this keep on growing. Paul writes, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Now that is to say that even though our bodies are dead because of sin, in other words, God's death sentence will still be carried out because of our rebellion through Adam, we will all die. But God is bringing about our full redemption. As we say in the creed, we believe in the resurrection of the body. And the reason we can say that is because God raised the body of the Son. Let us not forget what Paul said back in chapter 6. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. And this is the present and future promise for everyone who is in Christ. Every funeral that I lead does not attempt to convince those in attendance that the hope we should have on our behalf at our death is that we lived a good life worthy of a heavenly reward. The hope that we have rests upon whether or not we are in Christ. 
if we are not in Christ, then it doesn't matter if we were the most moral of men or the worst of men. For our eternal destiny will be the same. But if we are in Christ, then we will know that while our earthly body will return to the dust from which it came, at the resurrection of the dead, our bodies will be made new, no longer plagued with the sin of Adam, but it will be glorified in such a way that with our own eyes, we will be enabled to take in the fullness of God's glory and not be consumed by His holiness. So let me ask you, has this transformation from death to life taken place in you? Has the Spirit of God brought you to a place of surrender by convicting you of your sin and convincing you that it is only a full dependence upon the work of Christ that holds out any hope for your eternal salvation. Paul will declare in chapter 10 when we get there, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. And friend, if you have not yet come to this place of surrender, then I invite you to do so today. Do not wait. Do not hesitate. But call upon the name of the Lord and ask Him to take up residence in you that you might pass from death to life. Let me invite you to bow your heads with me that we might pray together for a moment.